Be court. It's it's a little Be firm. Courting. It's like a it's a little serious. Like yeah. you know, especially if you're like at a conference or something and you log on, they're like recording in process. It's like maybe the voice coach was like, okay, so people need to understand the gravity of this situation. Yes. Welcome to Making It at an Opera, a podcast about what it really means to find your voice and use it. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Kuhlman. Today, I get to welcome Dr. Lisa Neer. She is a multidisciplinary artist out of Portland, Oregon. As a singer, an actor, and a composer, she sits at this intersection of the stage, the concert hall, and the studio. As a singing actor, she is equally at home in the worlds of opera and spoken theater. As a composer, she writes theatrical, story-driven music for instruments and voices, and her training as an actor shapes her compositions with a keen sense of dramatic timing. I met her during the pandemic, while I felt completely stuck artistically, and we were both in a program together working to figure out what was next for us. What can we create in this space where everything happens online? Watching Lisa not only put herself out there in the online space, her philosophy of teaching, her compositions, her ambitious projects, but show up for her friends and colleagues as they begin to put themselves out there has been an inspiration. Her work has also acted as a platform for other artists. This spring, she composed and produced the One Voice Project Micro Opera Festival, a week-long festival of micro opera world premieres. Each five minutes in length, each with a narrative arc, each put in the hands of a different artist. She's also begun a series of conversations with producers, singers, and composers in the opera industry called Think Small, all about small projects that have grown beyond what the creator could have imagined. Lisa is part of this community of artists that are leading opera into its next chapter by creating what it will become having the leading-edge conversations, and nurturing the next generation of artists. I'm so excited to have her with us today. When all are healthy and 
Dr. Lisa Muir, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. I think there are so many different facets to your story because of these different concentrations you've had. And for any one person, it would be like, this is my life. I'm going to do this one thing. <laughs> and you've, you were just like, you know what? No, all of the things I need to do all of the things. <laughs> and what I find, what I find so inspiring and interesting about that is that I think a lot of singers right now during the pandemic are really waking up to the fact that they are more than one thing, that mm. they can do more than one thing. Mm. And that is actually going to be really beneficial to them and beneficial to the art form if we figure out what those things are and how to go ahead and do them. And so I'm interested in what your path was, what led you into these into these three different things, and I would even argue four because you're also a teacher mm. of each of those things. So you could actually call six, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we can we can consolidate. We can consolidate. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So what was your path there? Yeah, and I love that. And I I actually I even think too singers are already doing multiple things when they they sing, especially in classical music, right? I mean, multiple languages and acting and text and music. So yeah. Um, my path, it always can kind of finds its way back to, you know, text, to story, to music, to theater, to physical theater, as well as spoken and sung theater. Um, I was always making up songs, you know, playing with my toys as a kid and running around the backyard and humming soundtracks. And I loved listening to the soundtracks to my favorite movies, you know, and were and you a Disney girl? Disney, yeah, to some extent, but really like, you know, action, adventure, you know, John Williams, James Horner, you All know, right. um, very sci-fi nerdy, you know, and like getting to the point where you could say the lines of the show at the right moment in the, <laughs> in the movie soundtrack, you know, you know, so, so that was always such an influence. And then I became involved in, in high school musical and non-musical theater productions and fell in love with acting and I took piano lessons. I took a few voice lessons, but really not that many before, before college. And um, I was also very interested in visual art, talking about all the different things. So I ended up luckily at a perfect, a perfect college for me, which was Lewis and Clark College, a liberal arts school here in Portland, which was perfect because you could walk in and be super precocious and curious and work really hard and major in you know, just about anything. I was not somebody who had a conservatory background. I didn't know the difference between a symphony and an orchestra. You know, I, I was not that person. But through a school like Lewis and Clark, these little liberal arts gems that are all across the country, um, and Lewis and Clark particularly special, in my opinion, you know, I wandered in and sort of said, oh, I might want to be a music major. And they set me up with what classes I needed to start and got me involved in choir and I started singing classical voice for the first time and through that engaged with poetry in a different way than I ever had because I'd done theater and plays and Shakespeare's, you know, poetry through his plays, but but to connect with German and French and Italian poetry opened up that whole world to me. And I also was introduced for the first time to the idea of concert composing because I knew there were film composers and I knew there were recording artists, but this idea that one could write opera, one could write choral music, chamber music, all the things that my friends and I were creating and to start listening to living composers and have that instruction and start to write on my own ideas down and have them performed. I just got hooked. Um, so my undergrad, I, I did a double major in theater and voice and well, theater and music. And then in music, I did all the classes for a voice degree and all the classes for a composition degree. And I honestly can't remember which was the official degree recital. Um, <laughs> I think it was the composition recital that was the actual graded one. So, you know, I took a million credits and, and was, was way too busy and way too stressed, but I just learned a ton like a sponge and it was so worth it. And then, you know, what's fascinating is after an undergrad experience like that, graduate school is not so much uh, set up for multiple passions at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I had a wonderful graduate experience at University of Kansas as a composer, and I really missed singing. And, 
And it really isn't really designed for that, you know? Um, I mean, I could have sung in the choir, but, you know, the opera programs, the, you know, the opportunities for solo singers, even the ability to get into a faculty studio, you know, was not something that they really were designed to have space for. It's not their fault, you mm -hmm. know, it's just not designed that way with the credit hours and the expected load of the faculty who are very busy. So changed my life that Dr. Julia Braxholm, my second year of my master's made a space for me in her voice studio and basically started treating me as if I was a master's in voice student, which she absolutely did not need to do. Mm -hmm. And she changed my life because I got to sing again and I got that high level of coaching and training and um, got to be in the chorus and an, an understudy for a few small opera parts because of her advocacy. And then I, I sort of had the reverse thing happen. You know, you go to University of Iowa for my doctoral degree in voice and you sort of have the opposite happen where there's, there's not really a design for a voice doctoral student to be involved as a composer at an institution. Mm -hmm. So that stuff is kind of hard identity wise, honestly. And there were a few years there where I really felt like, was I really a singer or was I really a composer? And I hadn't written a lot of pieces during my doctoral um, studies. So I started to feel a little bit of that imposter syndrome or really a lot of that imposter syndrome come up. I wasn't even really promoting my existing works to people because I just was too busy with the doctoral program and it was really challenging. And mm. um, Were you in pedagogy or... It's performance and pedagogy performance and ped program, mm -hmm. a DMA in the University of Iowa, a very academic program. I mean, you're in classes kind of from dawn till dusk and mm -hmm. then in opera shows if you're lucky enough to be cast. And so, you know, it really was as I was emerging from the fog of writing a dissertation and, and putting out just the word again that I was sort of interested in composing and uh, wonderfully all the colleagues I'd met for years and years in schools, at festivals, in my professional circles start to come out of the woodwork and ask me to write for them. And so, you know, I guess there's a lot of ups and downs to that story. I think one thing that I really took away with it was, huh, academia kind of needs to like catch up, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, hey, that doesn't work so well. And then also, like, I think when you're in it, you really feel like if you're not doing all of your passions at the same time that, oh, I must be a failure. That thought comes in or, oh, I must not really be an actress if I'm not acting mm -hmm. in non-opera or, oh, I must not really be a composer. And, and so the other thing I just try to share in case it helps somebody else is you don't have to do every single thing all the time with mm -hmm. the same amount of time and energy. And school in particular is not always designed to accommodate that. And really, if you love something, you'll, you'll go back to it, just, which, mm -hmm. which is what I did, you know? And so it's been about five years since my doctoral studies wrapped up and I sing and I compose and I teach and it's a little crazy sometimes, but it's totally possible. It's so, I remember a mentor telling me that I was going to keep learning and growing so much after school. And I really didn't feel that way during that time. I felt like, no, this is my time I've set aside to learn it. And then I have to be ready to go for the industry and I, I won't have time. And well, I understand that from the sense of like, it's pretty hard to set aside time to take a music theory class or, or, or two, you know, or mm -hmm. a, a language, unless you're really going to make that a priority when you're a professional gigging and all of that. But I think overall, the true point that he was telling me was 100% true. I sing better now than I did in my doctoral program. I sing, I write better music. I've mm -hmm. gotten better. And those mm -hmm. things have come back into my life and I've, I've made them a priority and I'm, I'm always figuring out how to keep them in my life because they're important to me. And so that part of um, his advice was a hundred percent true. Yeah. There's this idea when you're in school that there's a place that is called done. Yeah. Like, I'm going to be done and I'm going to be good and then I'm going to be able to do these other things. Mm -hmm. And we don't realize that it's this constant unfolding, this constant development of your voice, of who you are as a person. When that unfolds, more of your voice unfolds, more of your what you have to say as an artist, as a composer, whatever. Um, for me, it's been writing that it just starts to open up in a way that it can't in school mm -hmm. and no amount of school that you can take will open that up for you. 
Hey, it's Gwendolyn. If you think these conversations are important, be sure to subscribe and follow us on Instagram at makingit.opera. That's making it without the G. You can also support the podcast by going to makingitinopera.com and making a donation. That's making it an opera, always without the G. And listeners, every once in a while, I want to make a podcast to just workshop this question with all of you. And for that, I need your help. Record a voice memo of yourself telling me what has been the most fulfilling thing you've done with your art and what it means to you to make it. And email that file to me at makingitanopera at gmail.com. Let's keep changing the narrative together. Okay, back to the show. Mm-hmm. What I hear in your story is just a lot of like, I thought this was cool. And so I dove right in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I love that because what I've noticed in reflecting on my own path was, was that I did think that some things were cool, but I got really interested in a path. I got really interested in some subscribed or prescribed mm-hmm. way of doing things Hmm. and I'm interested if that ever came in for you at all or if you if you had some sort of big dream some sort of big expectation of what you were supposed to be able to do Hmm. and if you ever had to recalibrate yeah that's such a great question you know in some ways I think my expectations about that were very different being at a music department at a small liberal arts school that graduated you know 12 or 15 music majors a year, many of whom were music history and music education. And then, you know, the year I graduated, I think I was the only voice major who was a senior that year, you know, because so you didn't often have like the way a larger program would, that sort of group or cohort who were all thinking about going to a master's in voice at the same time, you know, and I think in that way that shook that up. But I do think you know, coming in, I, I have an uncle who's a trumpet player, but beyond that, I don't have other professional classical musicians in my family. And so you are sort of looking around and trying to soak up the industry knowledge as it's presented to you. And you see the posters about the young artist programs. And, you know, I, I do remember trying to figure out, well, what does that look like? Like what's next? And mm-hmm. um, feeling like those decisions were really, really important. You know, like you had this $300 to spend on summer applications and you better choose the right ones. And what if you don't Mm -hmm. choose the really prestigious one and then you're not discovered, but what if you only choose the really prestigious ones and you can only apply to three, whereas your money would go a lot farther with the tinier ones. And those kinds of things felt very much like there was a club and sort of the flip side coming not from a conservatory was not really being sure you were ever going to get into the club, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that that imposter syndrome, especially when it's something with such big institutions as classical music and sort of solo opera singers having a really prescribed expectation that's a little different kinds of stressors than my instrumental friends, right? Who might Mm -hmm. decide they're going to really dig into creating a chamber music group, or they might decide they're gonna dig into or the orchestral audition circuit, but they don't really wanna do the concerto circuit. I mean, there are these differences for singers, but it really starts to feel like you do your masters and then you better get into one of the top yaps and then, you know, you you get discovered or not, you know? So I feel like those things were present. And at the same time, there were some things that disrupted that, like being at a liberal arts school, getting the masters in composition instead of voice, which sort of meant mm, wasn't really looking at the same circuit as the masters in voice people were, and then getting the doctorate rather than the masters. So that was a longer period of time. And at that point, actually, I was aging out of things. Mm-hmm. And so um, for me, the kind of final the final blow to that sort of mainstream course happened when I had done a kind of a summer festival range of auditions and the programs I got in were the safety programs. They were like the two week opera scenes and we're gonna teach you some acting and a yoga class. And I'm like, you know, I don't need that. Like I have an acting degree. I've been doing (laughs) yoga for years. I just Mm -hmm. learned a whole role and did it. You know, and I'm in the opera course at Cedar Rapids Opera. So I was like, I don't, I don't begrudge those programs, but I just looked at them and went, that's not for me. And it's not $1,200. And, 
And that was kind of the, that and sort of aging out of things turning, you know, 29, 30 was like, well, this is just not going to be the same path. And did it feel kind of liberating to age out? Um, you know, there was a difficult kind of transition for me because I was wearing a lot of technique stuff and I, I studied with, with one teacher for the first part of my doctorate and then it was time for a new perspective. So I studied with a different teacher and, you know, you switch teachers in the first year, they're like, don't apply for anything. And then you're writing your dissertation. I think um, there was a part of me that felt like maybe I'd miss my chance. Hmm. And there was also a part of me that felt like maybe I never got good enough to kind of do those those opportunities, you know, because I'd sort of been told like, oh, hold off this year, you're changing teachers and we're learning something new. And then, so I think in those ways, there was some disappointment and some sort of imposter syndrome things going on for me. And at the same time, it is liberating because it's just off the table. I mean, it's unjust, but it's just off the table. You know, if you're, mm-hmm. if you're too old, you're too old, you know, and if mm-hmm. you don't have the money, you just don't have the money. So, mm-hmm. I mean, in some ways, I think there was a loss and it's, you, you know, you have to find that you have to find your way of creating your own narrative to your story and not letting this industry expectation tell you whether or not you succeeded. Mm. And in fact, another thing that has been an interesting thing to observe is different people who were students of my, you know, with me, different colleagues along the way, whether that was from undergrad or master's or people I met, you know, through programs or in the doctoral studies, you know, different people maybe who, who were like talented and fortunate and, you know, whatever that combination to get something. And then to see like, did that bring the perfect thing to them or not? And, and you start to have a better perspective that like you, it's not some one thing like, oh, they got into Aspen and now their life is perfect and easy forever. You know, someone can get into Aspen and not be discovered or get into Aspen and and actually not have a good time or get into Aspen and have a great time, but then decide like, actually, I think I'm kind of burned out and I want to be a parent and have a normal nine to five. And you watch like every year, people are making decisions about what is the good life. And I think that's something that isn't easy to talk about without sounding like you're telling people to settle for something, mm. you know, because I don't mean that as, well, in a couple of years, you won't care about these dreams, young people, and you'll just mm-hmm. want, you know, a retirement plan. I don't mean that. I What I mean is don't let some other gatekeeper decide whether you're a singer or not. And don't let that definition of success change how you relate to your love of this art form. And in fact, also, I think a consumeristic mind too, like, are you getting $8,000 worth of value out of that summer program? (laughs) You know, because I saw people credit card, you know, between tuition and housing and um, travel and lost income over the summer. You know, that's a big investment. Like, Mm -hmm. are you, I mean, I, I think a healthy dose of capitalism, man, with some of those things is a really empowering wake up call to say like, no, you know what? I went to a summer program and I had a lesson with the big wig teacher and actually it was terrible mm. and was not helpful and messed up my mental game before I had to go on and do a show and they don't remember me and they didn't help me at all. Like, let's critique some of this stuff <laughs> because like, <laughs> what are we lauding? So, so that's kind of what it, that's more what I mean. So yeah, I think to be honest, I did have a lot of mixed feelings about it and and at the same time, my life was unfolding on its own trajectory and you take the best advice you can get at the time and you trust your teachers to say, don't invest now or wait. And, and then you you sort of look around and go, huh, okay, if that's not available to me, what's, what is? And actually, now that I'm looking at that and hearing what my friend said, I'm not actually sure I wanted that thing. <laughs> and that is empowering because they get put on this pedestal. And, and so it, it does over time help you, or it has helped me to let go of those things of like, oh, I missed out on being, you know, a young artist or I missed out. It's like, oh, okay. I mean, a big wake up call for me was realizing that like a lot of the young artist programs didn't pay enough to live on, but you couldn't have another job. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, well, that just, just doesn't work. You know, I mean, it just doesn't, right. simply doesn't work. Like, 
being busy in rehearsal at nights and working a day job, okay, maybe you can do that for a bit. But if you're saying I, I'm not, I'm gonna have to be in the course rehearsals at night and the principal rehearsals during the day covering, and you're not gonna pay me enough to live on in this city that, that your program's in, who can do that? You know, and, and that really, that really became a clarifying moment to me to talk to some of my colleagues. And I know not all of the programs are like that, but a good number of them are. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think, I think this other part of your story of having this, I've been having some interesting conversations around the generative or non-generative nature of opera mm. and um, quite literally composition is generative. Mm -hmm. I, I tend to make the argument that we as opera performers can, can decide whether we're going to be generative or not. Yeah. But um, and that we we have made the decision to manufacture something rather than generate something rather than create something from new. But you quite literally are making something that was in your head. You're making that did not exist before and you're making it a, making it a reality on paper that will then become a reality in sound. Mm -hmm. And I wonder because it took me a long time to get there, a long time to think of myself as someone who could do that, mm -hmm. not as a composer, but as just someone who could make something that didn't exist before. Mm -hmm. I was used to, as a singer coming in, almost everything is done before you even walk in the room so that you can get mm -hmm. to the point of rehearsing and um, manufacturing this thing that people wanna see. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in the empowerment of having this kind of in your back pocket, just, or just kind of like a character in your life that's always like, you're always walking hand in hand with it. Like I may be a singer, mm -hmm. you may not want me in this young artist program or whatever, but you know what, who cares? I'm making my thing mm -hmm. anyway. Mm -hmm. I don't need you to make my thing. And I don't know if I'm just like planting a lot of stuff <laughs> in, your, in your mouth or in your head, uh, but I'm interested in, in that interplay that yeah. composition has had for you? Yeah, I think, you know, if you're going to be a classical composer or whatever, you know, a concert music composer, you are, in fact, a producer as well, because, you know, most of the work you do for your, your composition recitals in undergrad and grad school are not actually writing the music. I mean, it is, but then it's really producing the concert. It's, it's setting up the rehearsals and it's, it's facilitating those and it's recruiting people. And so, you know, from the very beginning, then you're being taught and you're practicing the art of producing concerts in it in with maybe a slightly different, maybe it's just a different angle than than as a performer, uh, you know, alone. And I do think that gives you that confidence of like, well, I can make something and I can put on an event, you know, I think a lot of performers do this too. So maybe it's not just mm -hmm. as a composer, but I do think in terms of like coordinating with other people, you're coordinating with a lot of people in these undergrad and master's recitals, you know, I had a 24 person choir for one of my, you know, master's pieces that was not a, an established choir. That was something that the choral graduate student and I recruited and put together. And so, you know, you do have that skill set that I think many of us learn. And I also do think, you know, you start to look at the repertoire and you see the gaps and, you know, I, I can fill that, you know? And so when around this time last year, I was talking to a lot of my, my colleagues who were singers and some who have sung in, in really amazing places that I have not had a chance to sing. And everybody was sort of expressing the same thing. Like, I love this art form and I can't do it right now. And I think opera, you know, people were feeling like opera is going to be one of the last things that could come back because it was so many people and, you know, people exhaling at each other for hours and hours, and, you know. <laughs> and so once we decided, like, let's make something for the One Voice Micro Opera, you know, festival, the other question was like, we can make anything. And what did people want to make? And, you know, the question I love to ask performers is like, what do you wish you could do that doesn't exist yet? or that you haven't mm -hmm. had a chance to do like what what do you and with singers like what characters what stories do you want to tell that you haven't had a chance to and and the stories that poured out of people you know were really personal and they were really unique and they played against all the gender and voice type stereotypes and then you know the, many of these operas are now available 
in, in multiple keys. So, so I just started working on one that I wrote for Zach Finkelstein tenor that I'm performing at Darkwater Music Festival later this month. You know, I've got it transposed down into mezzo range and it was originally premiered by a male singer and now I'm performing as a female singer. And so like, you know, this is exactly that, that thing of, you know, people will say in Hollywood, you know, take the script and then switch the gender identities, you know, flip the gender identities of all the characters and you'll have like much more interesting characters. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, we're kind of living that. Yeah. And I think the other thing is just producing your own concerts as a performer. I mean, that that moment when I decided not to spend $1,300 in travel expenses to go do a two-week program that just wasn't the right fit for me, you know, it switched to, well, what could I do this summer that would be less money than that? And like a lot of things I could do would be less money than that, you know? And so I put together, that's when I put together a call for scores for unaccompanied voice for me to perform and produce around Iowa, the One Voice Project, which was not opera at the time, but it was concert music scores, but for completely solo voice. And I spent a lot of my time, I spent a little bit of money printing programs and driving around but nowhere near $1,300. Mm. And I built connections with a bunch of composers and learned how to produce a concert and built a repertoire that I've used for the last 10 years or seven years or something like that. You know, and so I actually felt like I got more out of producing my own concert than I would have from learning a few opera scenes mm. at that point. And I'm not saying that's not the right choice for some people, but it, it wasn't something I needed at the time, you know? And so... I do think that being involved in any kind of off the beaten path repertoire where you can have more artistic agency and feel like it isn't so well trod that everyone knows what to critique you on before you even open your mouth, which is how I felt performing arias from Marriage of Figaro or, you know, any of the big ones for auditions, not so much in performance, but for auditions. I felt that way, like, "Mm, I'm done with these. Anytime you go off the beaten path, you have more freedom. And then working with loving composers or, or working with underrepresented composers and, and music that's been, you know, discriminated against for years, you know, you have such an amazing opportunity to have more of that generative space without all the baggage that comes with the standard rep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And do you think that there's a, do you think there's a different way that you and and the other artists show up when you're comparing these kind of established repertoire sort of things with experience producing and performing in these newer things where you're creating opportunities, but you're also giving voice to to people and populations that haven't been given voice or had Mm -hmm. voice enough. Um, What is the difference in how people show up as artists to these kinds of projects? I think people are just so much more creative, you know? I mean, you can have your favorite opera singer's voice in your head constantly. You're comparing yourself to them as you're working on these famous arias. And we need good models. They they are amazing artists. They were amazing artists. You know, and it, it just also starts to feel like there's no way to get through that aria if it's ever going to compete, you know? Mm-hmm. And you take a piece where there is no recording, even if it's been around for a long time, or the the recordings aren't by the big major, you know, performers that we we know and love and look up to, but maybe just by fantastic, you know, professional and amateur performers or, or people of different experience levels. So you might be able to hear like, oh, they made that choice, but I'm going to do this other choice and no one's going to get their panties in a bunch because <laughs> they don't already know what it's supposed to be and how much portamento you can take. You know, mm. and I think that's that's great. And, you know, when it's it's writing a new piece of music, you know, somebody's like, hey, this leap is like really uncomfortable where that sits in my range. We rewrite it. Who cares? And it's not <laughs> it doesn't have to feel I did that. I did that for for now available. There were a few few notes where when I bumped the piece down, you know, they just they didn't feel super great the way the motive sat. And I flipped them up in the octave like I, I changed the motive a little bit. It's my piece. I can do it. Right. <laughs> but also we do that in some standard rep already, too. Right. I mean, Mm. we just like have these really weird rules about when you can and when you can't, which is kind of dumb as well, because it it shunts a lot of people out of doing pieces. And who cares if it's up an octave or not, you know, for a note or two. So I think just what's the amount of freedom you would give yourself if you were covering a jazz standard? Like, can we have that with some, 
you know, in classical music, like what is the big deal? Mm. It would be so great, you know? And um, I think there, I think there's such a, there's such a frame of mind in classical music that, that there are all these rules that like, there's a way to do it and the other ways are wrong. Mm -hmm. And that is so, I, I finally was like really thinking critically about that. (laughs) And (laughs) it's like after 10 years of being in this and I was like, huh, wait a second. Isn't art like, isn't this art? Mm -hmm. What is the difference between an art and a craft? What is the difference Mm. between, between generating something and manufacturing it? It's, there are rules. Mm -hmm. There are, there are ways that there, that it is supposed to be. And there is a freedom to create. And I wonder how a lot of the conversation, especially over the last year, has really opened me up to the idea of, oh, well, we've put a certain set of cisgendered white men, well, cis as far as we know, but a bunch of these these composers that we have kind of elevated to this superhuman status and we can't we can't mess with their stuff mm-hmm. we we can't do it how they didn't want to have it and I'm not saying that like I am a I'm a believer in performance practice I think it's interesting sure. I think it's cool and I think some of the stuff really shines and glitters when sure. when you're like going by that but um I think that's such an interesting and freeing thing when you're talking to a composer who is now living who is just like who cares yeah, <laughs> it's I mean, work. you know <laughs> Um, yeah, I teach legato. I teach chiaroscuro. Of course I do. It's a fun sound to learn how to make. And it's great. And I, you know, I do think that we, we get, you know, we have stylistic kind of and musculature as as athletes, right? As musical, musician athletes, we get into some defaults and it's good to learn those defaults if we want to be in this industry and and create the sound and blend and cut and all the, the things, you know, and also, um, sometimes it's okay to like have some breath in your sound or straighten your tone. And I'd like to open up those rules of like, you know, and have more, more of that variety be possible for people and, and more ownership and just less fussiness. I I have a, a dear friend who, you know, talked about one way of combating the judginess in, in classical music was really to, to work on her own inner dialogue and stop judging other people in that, you know, way where you're looking for mistakes, the kind of way that a lot Mm. of us start to sort of internalize after so many adjudications and so many auditions and so much hard work to actually even learn to hear the difference between whatever, you know, vibrato and wobble or whatever, insert any Mm -hmm. technique or any, you know, is that the violas or is it the violins? You know, any of the things that, that are not wrong skills to learn, not unuseful skills to learn, but also like not the end all be all either. And and I really love that how she took ownership of like, I need to deprogram myself as part of my contribution to making the world of classic music a more loving place. And, mm. and on, by no means was any of this saying that, you know, she didn't bring her A game or didn't want other people to bring her A game and that there's a difference, right? We, there really is a difference between mm-hmm. bringing our A game, committing, being our best version of ourselves in the craft and that toxic judgy mm-hmm. stuff, you know, and the gotcha culture. I think there's such a gotcha culture, mm-hmm. you know. Can you describe that, that? Yeah. You know, it's the culture that's kind of like waiting that knows that like high school students mispronounce Giovanni to Giovanni and is waiting to correct them. Right. (laughs) Or that whatever, the minute you've learned something, you're sort of waiting to be able to correct someone else on it. You know, Mm, it's like a sort of power or a weapon. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and um, oftentimes, like I encounter this when my students do adjudications or when I'm doing adjudications and I hear, you know, the, the copy, the copy talk, you know, from from fellow colleagues and are we trying to encourage love of this art form? Are we trying to find the, the the most useful three things I could tell someone, which by the way, might be three good things. Mm. Or am I 
kind of looking for the easy outs. Well, I have to write something down. Aha, one of your schwas was wrong. Done. I wrote something, you know, mm. and it's such a, and I, you know, you even notice this happening, you know, I remember starting to notice it happening as a grad student and noticing it happening occasionally between faculty and realizing like you're sitting up there worried about what they're going to tell you, but actually all of them are, are kind of trying to impress one another and be mm. sure that they have something intelligent to say. And then this of course means that they're criticizing you to look intelligent sometimes. And I had generally, I have only wonderful things to say about my mentors, but, but I just began noticing these very subtle, even between very friendly colleagues, the needs in the room to sound smart, the needs in the room mm. to have something to critique, because of course, if I can't find something to critique, it must mean that I'm dumb or that I'm not mm. smart enough to notice that there's an error, even with, with something that's a very, you know, very good uh, or, or whatever, you know, and I, I think our academic systems, our adjudication systems, you know, uh, and, and sometimes it comes down to, you know, I'll, I'll adjudicate something and there's this rubric of like 10 things and somehow I'm supposed to come up with something to say on all those 10 things. And I feel like I have to justify my score. And I can't just say seven out of 10 if you were like pretty good, but your vibrato was a little bit iffy. I can't just put seven out of 10. I have to write that thing down. The way that we structure so much of our education and so mm -hmm. many of our opportunities for, for young and emerging performers and composers to get more experience and put themselves out there are kind of full of this stuff. Where like, mm -hmm. if they were coming to me for a voice lesson, I'd be like, cool, these things are great. Let's work on this one thing, here's some tips. And it wouldn't be that gotcha culture at all. And you have to kind of work against it so often mm -hmm. because of the structures in place. It's like this need to like quantify something that can only really be qualified. It's yeah. like trying to make poetry into like a math equation it's <laughs> yeah. it's it's kind of what it sounds like to me mm -hmm. um yeah I'm interested in kind of going more down this like nurturing aspect because you are a teacher in your different areas and you wrote something recently that really got to me and that was about this this idea of what is legitimate to write as a composer mm -hmm. and um <laughs> I'll I, I think I'll link it. If you'll oh, allow right. me, I'll oh, play totally. it at this sure. moment. Okay. Uh, <laughs> this really cool, sweet, spooky song. What was it called? The Witch of... Oh, wait, the probably the Ghost of the Witch Elm? The yeah. Ghost of the Witch Elm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and just this idea that composers writing for amateur or developing voices that that is somehow looked down upon, that that's somehow not legitimate. That's not really serious composing. Yeah. Um, it kind of actually reminds me of my mom who she was in children's theater and she, she was just always like hardcore. If the best theater on the stage must be children's theater. Oh, I love children's theater or, so much. Yeah. Or we will not have, we will not have tomorrow's audience because children know bullshit when they see it. Mm -hmm. So, and that, that's kind of what, that's kind of what clicked for me when you were talking about that. So I'd, I'd be interested in hearing more about your experience with that. Yeah. You know, I think I've been really interested over the last several years as I've been composing more and more, you know, outside of the academy as a professional, I've really been watching my own process and becoming aware of like, what are the thoughts that are coming up and what kinds of emotional and, and mental and spiritual spaces am I in as, am I, as I'm writing and, and what is the good life and how, if this is really what I'm going to do, how is it going to mm. be a more pleasant experience? Because what I, what I find is that it's very easy for many doubts and self-judgments to come in. And if you track them down, you know, they, they have a lot of roots in some, some of the aspects of our classical concert music culture, right? A culture that elevates complexity, a culture that elevates innovation, a culture that elevates kind of pushing the envelope and where oftentimes, you know, the things that are getting praised by critics or by your mentors or by, you know, other composers are, are things that, that are very challenging kind of for, for professionals only. They may or may not be avant-garde, but they probably are pushing the envelope in some way of virtuosity or interdisciplinary or something, right? And 
And I don't think any of that is wrong to do if it's what you want to do. <laughs> but, you know, I was noticing how hard it was to let myself write a one, four, five, one progression because it seemed like a cop-out, right? No, you're supposed to do something more interesting than that, Lisa. And, you know, strange thing is like, that's completely made up and I get to decide what I do with my ability to write chromatic or atonal or extended tertian or, or any other kind of musical language. And in fact, I do, even in my music for professionals. But the idea that I could have a spooky song for middle schoolers that was verse, chorus, verse, chorus, and we're done, and I could write in one sitting, it sort of felt, there was a part of it that felt really fun. And there was a part of it that felt like, oh, I'm, I'm sort of cheating because that's easy, right? <laughs> like, and, and so um, at the same time, you know, I'm thinking about all these things about trust and love and flow and inviting, inviting flow into my work. And as I'm writing with, you know, emerging, but, but particularly with these songs, these sort of playful, texts that Kendra Leonard wrote that we meant to be appealing to a young audience. I'm thinking about myself and what kind of child I was and what I would have loved to sing and play and the chords that made me feel, um, if you felt that harmonic movement and it meant something and it was, it was so awesome to produce that. You know, I was a piano student mostly at that age. I took voice lessons later. So I wrote some, I also wrote some piano, um, kind of early to intermediate piano solos this last year. And it was so joyful to connect with these, these harmonies that I loved playing. You know, the minute I can make that root position triad shape as a child, where else can I put it? On the piano. Mm. And like, I love that. And it's great to write it. And you know, what was really wonderful is then to see that the, the performers, these young performers that I worked with, singers and pianists, that they liked it. And mm. you know, that's actually equally meaningful as working with a very highly skilled virtuosic performer colleague and possibly more impactful like you were saying with your mother's work in theater, that it paves this way for the next generation of theater lovers, but also how many more people can play my two and a half page blue whale song that's for beginning to intermediate pianist than can play a very challenging flute solo that I wrote, <laughs> like a lot more people. Mm -hmm. And you get to then maybe be part of someone's life in this way that that's really amazing and, and so special. And, and I don't think that we talk about that. I had very fantastic, you know, composition mentors and no one ever talked to me about writing for young players. Hmm. And, and I mean by that to say, they talked to us about so many things. So this must be so in the, in the water of what we're all immersed in as concert music composers for these excellent mentors to not think to tell us that. Mm -hmm. You know, because they clearly thought of so many other wonderful things that they taught us. And um, yeah, so it's it's really been joyful. I want to write more music for emerging and, and amateur, however you want to. I mean, we need better words for this. But, you know, mm -hmm. people who who have been playing for a few years, who have been singing for a few years, whatever age they are, you know, I want to write more things like that. In addition to um, it is, of course, really fun to make wacky, cool noises on the clarinet <laughs> with someone who's like, cool, that's awesome and hard. Let's do it. I mean, that is also fun and wonderful. I think that can go over the whole industry so so poignantly that, that we teach that it has to be hard. We teach, mm -hmm. we teach almost a requirement of difficulty mm -hmm. where really we could, it could be easy. Mm -hmm. Why not? It can be fun. It can yeah. be easy. Well, it can I be fun and easy and it can be fun and hard, but you know. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. And, and honestly, like even things that, you know, standard rep, not super easy, but like I take a song, I always use the song of Andy Musique by Schubert as an example with my composer clients. And I say, look, Andy Musique can be sung by a rising senior in high school, or maybe even a junior, a rising high schooler. And it's sung by Renee Fleming. <laughs> and you can believe that Renee Fleming sounds better on many different 
ways to evaluate that performance, right? She can pour more things into it because she's lived a longer, fuller life. She has more technique, all of this stuff. And so can the high schooler also perform it really well. It's not easy to perform a tuneful two-page song in German well, but it can be done. So in some ways, even as a professional, right, I don't want to program all of the most difficult, thorny, rhythmically challenging, rangy, I don't have time. When I put one of those pieces on my program, I need some more pieces like on die Musik so that I have the time to learn everything. And so, you know, we talk about how there's a practicality and also what do you get when you then have the opportunity to have your piece that is not insanely complicated in terms of its components performed by a really outstanding prof professional. You get all the colors, you get all the diction, you get all the, you know, uh, interpretation, you get all the nuance that they can pour in. And it's not a cop out, right? That they're singing mm -hmm. your piece, you know, or, or it's not a cop out to write a piece that that isn't every single trick in the book, you know? And, and so, yeah, this idea of like the elevation of difficult for difficult sake, mm. you know, is, is a, I think is something to interrogate, you know, from all sides in our, in our industry. Mm -hmm. I'd like to go into your, your conversation series. Think small. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, because I love the concept. I have a, a plague of thinking big. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved, no. I loved seeing when you came out, when you came out with that, because I was like, yes, because when I think, because thinking big is fun, mm -hmm. but then you don't even know where to start. And then you kind of just sit down and feel overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And so you've interviewed people who start with something really small and it just kind of balloons from there. And I'm interested in what what kind of drew you to that subject? Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad that that's resonated with you. Those conversations have been so meaningful to me. I got interested in this because I, I've been talking to a lot of composers. I coach composers on accelerating their artistic and also their business goals and dreams and making them happen. And what I was finding was many composers were coming to me with stories like, I have been working on a giant choral orchestral masterwork on my own for the last five years and I need help with the, with the vocal writing. Or I really wanna be a choral composer and I've been writing pieces on Sibelius for the last two years. I haven't heard any of them perform, but I, I wanna get good enough to show them to someone. You know, and what I was noticing was that there was this disconnect between getting some work going mm -hmm. and, and achieving the actual goal like it's one yes i want that for you let's get your choral orchestral masterwork performed and also have you had any choral pieces performed at all because we can look at all the things you've written and critique them and you probably won't learn as much from that as much information as i can give you as you will from getting one two-minute piece actually performed by a choir and then your big piece will be better and look at all the things that happen right you network you you meet singers you get a sample of your music in the world. So then there's, you know, this opportunity for people to get excited about your music and ask you to write that bigger piece and all these things. And so I wanted to talk to people who had done that. And also, I really think um, during the pandemic, I was not able to do gigantic things <laughs> because everything we did took so much more time. You know, you're not just singing, you're also your own recording engineer. And then your phone takes the video, but your microphone takes the audio and you have to sync it up. And now you're uploading and, you know, you had to do everything. And we were all stressed out. And so I was also very interested in like, how, how can we make things smaller so that we can do something well? Even on a consumer side, I didn't really want to watch a two-hour concert, even of my wonderful friends. I just didn't have the brain space, you know, but like a, a five-minute video I could. So I was interested, like, who else was thinking about these things? A lot of them, because of the timing, were things that happened during the pandemic, although not everything. And I think the trends that, that I found in talking to, you know, performers, composers, you know, music producers and ensembles was that having a small project 
with really clear parameters with equal buy-in from everyone where you know a composer is going to write something but they know they're going to get a performance in the video or you know you're asking something of someone and you're contributing something back right they allow everyone to get something that they need an opportunity to perform an opportunity to write an opportunity to hear their music an opportunity to stay in front of their audiences and stay connected because they're worried about their careers community anything right whatever those things are with the right parameters you get this equal buy-in equal return on that and then this sample of work that actually in most cases grew and inspired another project or had a bigger impact because more people you know performed that piece or bought that album or you know the the fact of moving from like an idea to an action that was completed in a reasonable amount of time which is facilitated by the project being small and in fact most of the projects take a lot of time and effort to do even though they're small right? mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. especially during a pandemic and so i'm really excited i hope to do some more of those conversations in the future I was inspired by them and I hope other people are inspired as well to sort of drill down and find something. What's the tiniest version of a dream project that you can make happen in, th you know, within three months or within six, you know, six months, whatever that time frame, and then actually do it, have the energy to do it well, and then see where that leads you, you know? Mm -hmm. And we'll link to it on the show notes, guys. No Yay. <laughs> um, I think there's there's this one thing that that really stands out about all of this, and that is just this like how much you can get done without really asking for anyone's permission. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I I wonder, like thinking about your story and your path, how much was permission ever even really a thing for you? Mm. That's a good question. I mean, I think I'm pretty precocious. So when I see that someone else is doing something, I think maybe I could do it too. That's kind of the first, that's the first thing that occurs to me is like, well, maybe I could do that too. I mean, I, that goes back to seeing in seventh grade, I saw the seventh grade play. I had no idea that they would let seventh graders like me go on, on stage with awesome costumes and do an awesome production like Peter Pan. It was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And I'm like, well, hey, they're letting kids do that. So like, maybe I could do that. I mean, maybe not, but if I auditioned, I'd find out, right? And so the next year I auditioned and I got in, right? And so that's kind of the, that's always been this place where I go back to is like, well, I don't know, but like, let's find out. Like if the answer's no, then we'll find out. And then of course, as it turns out, if you put yourself out there consistently enough and you work hard and you don't let all that imposter syndrome completely shut you down, you can create art and you can be involved in this industry. You know, I mean, the, the biggest thing that happens is we, we self-limit internally or we let a few rejections that are completely understandably painful and difficult, you know, shut us down. That's in my experience, that's the case, the persistence is is such an important part of this. And so, yeah, I mean, I've definitely had my own at times of feeling like there were gatekeepers. My first round of master's auditions for voice, I didn't get into the programs I wanted and I didn't get funded, right? And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so, so believe me, I've had rejection. The thing that's not popular, popularly known in the culture when they think about the arts is everybody imagines that audition and then you get in or get out. But the, the truth is like most of the work that we do is actually about relationships, right? Mm -hmm. It's mostly working with your colleagues and making cool stuff happen. And then as you all go through the world, recommending each other for stuff and being a good person. And that can either seem like really unfair if it seems like there's not transparency about who's making these decisions that can, that can sometimes seem like a bummer to people because half the jobs aren't ever advertised. Or it can be really empowering because then it's actually just about being a good person, doing the best work you can do in the time you have given, being a good colleague and building those musical and creative friendships. And so I encourage people to think about it in that way. I understand if sometimes, um, you know, I remember this happened like a lot in the adjuncting circles um, in Iowa would be like someone would get a job as an adjunct, which we all wanted, right? Hey, how'd you get that? It was never advertised. Oh, so-and-so just reached out and said, do you want to teach, right? It seems so unfair. 
Mm. But there are these weird loopholes, right? Or you just get invited to sing the gig. They didn't hold up with auditions. You know, they just didn't, they just asked someone. That can seem mm -hmm. really unfair and I understand it. But the kind of mentorship that I offer to my students that, that I know a lot of people offer is, is helping demystify that part of the industry, which is really not that different than other jobs, you know? Mm. So, I mean, you asked about permission and I guess I'd say generally I'm less interested in the opportunities that require permission. Although I do, of course, do auditions and some calls for scores. They're not, it's not my my main way of making things happen in my life, my main way of making things happen in my life are through relationships. And so if you are building that, if you are being a good person and supporting other people, you really do start to find your community of people who want to support one another. Mm -hmm. And, and in that way, it actually becomes less about permission and more about a little bit of leadership, a little bit of structure. It's really important when you're working with your friends to structure it and decide how this is going to work. That was, that's something that we talk about a lot and think small is what were the parameters? You know, that's a skill set because when you're working with your friends, you better be sure you really, <laughs> you're really clear about everybody's obligations to each other. So you protect those friendships, but really once it becomes that you can create together with your friends, whatever you want. And yeah, there's no, there's no gatekeepers anymore. It's information sharing and it's calling up your friend who released an EP last year and asking them how they did it. And then once you've done it, telling your friends how you did it <laughs> and creating work and putting it out there and then building, building your life in, in the arts from there. Mm. It sounds like such a, it is such a more empowering place to be in that you have the power to make something and you have the power to help somebody make something mm -hmm. and other people have the power to help you make something. And you show up in this kind of eye level sort of space versus please let me make something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, yeah. I think it can sometimes be challenging for singers, especially when you're, when you're studying singing, like an undergrad and master's to feel this way because many of our, our repertoire um, much of our repertoire is voice plus piano. And if you haven't yet met like your pianist best friend who wants to do those things with you in kind, you can start to feel like you want to do things and you have to have this budget to pay a pianist. And so um, I know I definitely felt that way earlier. And if if any singers are at that point where they're sort of still searching for their their fellow performers and feeling sort of limited, just say you're not alone. And also you will find you will find collaborative instrumentalists who want to do stuff with you. And in the meantime, you can do <laughs> the one voice project and other un unaccompanied uh, pieces. There's a lot of them out there. But I remember that was that was something that that definitely felt like another sort of barrier compared to my instrumental friends who had more unaccompanied solo rep, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I just really encourage singers who are are still building that network, you know, keep building the network and and keep getting to know collaborative pianists and also other other instruments who would really love to work with you, you know, make those friends and, and you will find the friends who want to do a concert and who you don't have to hire where you're going to both put in the effort and both make the money. Because I know that's such a huge hurdle for young singers in an audition circuit and in a school situation. Um, but it does, it is not forever. <laughs> it's not, you can, you'll get, you'll get to the other side of that as you make friends. Well, thank you so much. I know I've learned so much from this conversation. Oh and my gosh. I really appreciate you sharing your story with us. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for having me and, and for this platform for all of us to have these really important conversations. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Listeners, Dr. Lisa Neer's website is lisaneermusic.com. You can find her on Instagram at lisaneermezzo, on Facebook at lisaneermusic, and on Twitter at lisaneer. And that's N-E-H-E-R. Remember, you can find all links in the show notes, along with the link to sign up for the Audition Pep Talk series to remind you why your voice matters while you're out there making it through audition season. I also want to hear from you. Send an email to makingitinopera at gmail.com with a voice memo telling me what making it means to you. I may feature it in an upcoming episode where we can all workshop this question together. This podcast is a production of Sounds Like Cool, 
with editing by me and production help from Sarah Decker. Theme music is Our Block Party by Reactor Productions. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, remember to subscribe, leave us some love on Apple Podcasts, and check us out on Instagram at makingit.opera to stay updated and become part of the conversation. You can also go to makingitinopera.com or follow the link in the show notes to support the podcast. I'm Gwendolyn Kuhlman. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.